there are certain privileges that are afforded to those people who are close in relationship to someone in authority. Such status, however, can easily go to our heads when we are close to that person who happens to be in authority, and we can easily abuse that status and the privileges that it brings. Perhaps this is nowhere more clearly seen than in our kids, and perhaps no more notoriously than in preacher's kids, right? It's easy for kids to drop into the my dad's pastor mentality, but it's not just exclusively held to preacher's kids. You can run into it, my mom's the principal, my grandparents own the place, and our children very quickly get their heads filled with the status that rightly belongs to the person that they're related to, and they begin to abuse it. That is, until they're reminded that it's not them, it's dad, it's mom, or it's grandparents who are the ones that are really in charge. I wasn't in the room the morning that this particularly happened, but the pastor that I had growing up, uh, it, was, uh, it was a service at a different time from when I was there. As he was preaching, he noticed that his oldest son was sitting up in the balcony goofing off with his friends. It was serious enough that he was distracted from the pulpit. And he knew that if he was distracted from the pulpit, the people in his son's immediate vicinity were also distracted. His son was convinced that his dad was otherwise occupied and that there was no one around him with the authority enough to tell the pastor's child to be quiet until his dad stopped in the middle of his sermon and called his son by name from the pulpit and said, I can see you, and if I am distracted where I am, I know you are a distraction to those that are around you, and you will stop right now. He corrected his son from that place because as a father, he saw his son's behavior. He judged it unworthy. He spoke to it plainly. And in doing so, he proved that their special relationship didn't exempt his son from right behavior. Instead, because of his love, he was compelled as his son's father to address it. This is exactly the situation in the book of Amos. God is speaking to his people through the prophet Amos, specifically the northern tribe of Israel. All who are in Christ, as these people of Israel, had a special status in relationship with the Lord. Those of us who are in Christ have a special relationship with the Lord. And just as it was tempting for these ancient Israelites, it is tempting for us to abuse that status as well. And as such, the Israelites needed to be reminded, and you and I need to be reminded today, that God's love is not a license to sin. Look with me in the book of Hosea in chapter 9, beginning in verse 5. We'll read what I believe is a really great summary of much that we see throughout the book of Hosea. Or, I'm sorry, Amos. I'm still back in Hosea. Amos says, The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name. 
Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kephtor and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that in your grace and your mercy, you would guard and keep us this morning. Guard my heart, Heavenly Father, and as we look at this book that so beautifully explains your heart, your sovereignty, Heavenly Father, your justice and righteousness, but also your grace and your mercy. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would speak through us, or speak through your word to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would grab a hold of our hearts. Lead us more deeply in love with God. And in knowing his love, receiving his love, and loving him in return, I pray that you would lead us to a love of one another that is great and brings you glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. The central message of the book of Amos can be summarized in the sentence that God's love is not a license to sin. Amos is wanting to communicate that to the people of ancient Israel. Amos was a prophet called out by God, not a son of a prophet, not a professional prophet. Instead, he was a lowly shepherd in the fields of Tekoa, we find in the very opening verse of Amos chapter 1. And he'll point out later on that he's not a professional prophet. But he was called by God out of Judah to go north into the nation of Israel to prophesy against their sin. We see an opening of Amos that he ministered in during the reign of Uzziah in Judah and Jeroboam II in northern Israel. This was a specific time in the life of the Israelites where there was no superpower in the world. The Assyrians have not yet arisen to power, and so there's no superpower bullying Israel. And so Israel is able to flex its strength a little bit, and the reign of Jeroboam was one of the most prosperous times in the history of Israel. They traded, and they grew wealthy and powerful, and strengthened. They prospered, and in their prosperity, they grew proud. And they seemed to believe that their favored status with the Lord granted them the ability to do as they pleased, even breaking the law of God without regard for his renown or his warnings. That is, until we get to Amos chapter 3, verse 2, where the Lord says, "'You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all of your iniquities.'" If there's a thesis statement, if there's a main idea that Amos communicates and that ties all of his prophecies together, it's that idea right there. God says, you are the nation I specifically chose and called to myself, so you will not escape my discipline. You don't get this special status that allows you to sin all that you want. My love is not an excuse or a license for you to sin. But instead, because you have this special status as my son, you get my discipline more than anyone else. Because you represent me and bear my name, is what the Lord says. And just as Joel brought an emphasis on the theme of the day of the Lord, 
Throughout the prophet uh, Amos, he highlights another important theological truth that makes his message in some ways distinct from the others that we have studied so far. The message that Amos brought to the people of Israel in his day and to you and me now is the message that comes from the Lord, the God of hosts. Repeatedly throughout the prophet Amos and throughout his prophecy, he continually refers back to God as Yahweh, the God of hosts. The God of angel armies, the God that is above the thousands and the ten thousands and the most powerful nations of the earth. It's the highest way that we can think of elevating the name of God. He is Yahweh, the God of hosts. And this title is used repeatedly throughout the book of Amos to bring about God's, uh, uh, the, God's right and expose God's right to discipline his children. But also, Amos exposes the character of God when he uses this name. In Amos 4.13, he says this, Behold, he who forms the mountains, creates the wind, and declares to man what is his thoughts, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. God declares that he is the one who creates all things. He is the God over creation. Not simply the God of creation. We live in a world where there are a lot of people that worship some nebulous form of God, the God of the universe. I don't know about you, but I worship the God over the universe. I don't worship the God within who is the universe. God declares right here that he is above all things, above creation itself. And in the verses that we read at the beginning of this in Amos chapter 9, verse 5 and 6, he says it again, the Lord God of hosts He touches the earth and it melts. All who dwell in it mourn. And all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt. The imagery there is during the rainy seasons as the Nile would swell and it would flood. We all know and have seen even recently the destruction of a river out of control. As it rises with the floodwaters and it sweeps away homes and houses and destroys homes and lifestyles and livelihoods and it transforms landscapes. God is the God who's more powerful even than that. God is the one who initiates even that. Verse 6, he builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vaults upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. There is nowhere that God is not. He is in the highest heights of the heavens, and the, the basement of his existence is in the depths of the earth itself. In other words, there is no place in all of the universe where God is not and where God is not in charge. This Lord, the God of the universe, is the Lord who is speaking to his people through Amos. God is seen throughout this book as being in control of all things, and that includes everything that happens to his people, even disasters. Amos chapter 3, verse 6, after a series of rhetorical, not not really rhetorical questions, but the answer is very clearly no to every single one of them, God asks this question in Amos 3, 6, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? God asserts his sovereignty even over the disasters of our lives. 
So often we fall prey to this notion that when bad things happen in my life, somehow that means that God has taken his hands off of my life. And that is why my life has gone so completely out of control. But the truth of the matter is what Amos is wanting us to understand and what the peop- he wants the people to understand is that everything that is coming to them comes to them through the will, the plan, and the hands of God. That God is sovereign that God is over all of these things, and he wants them to see not only that he is in charge, but that he's involved. He's invested in his people. He's not ignorant of what, he's got, what, he's, what is going on. Instead, this Lord, Yahweh, the God of hosts, sees their sin, and he sees our sin. If you want a verse that kind of summarizes everything that takes place in the book of Amos, you can look at Amos chapter 9 where we read, but verse 8, I believe, is a beautiful summary of the entire book. And the beginning of that verse says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. Amos wants his people, and Amos wants us to know God sees our sin. No matter where we go or how secret we think that we are, God is the one whose knowledge is great and big. God is not blinded by our sin. We are. One of the worst realities of our sin is that our sin blinds us to its presence. It blinds us to our flaws and our failures. Ask anyone what's wrong with, ask any husband what's wrong with his wife, or any wife what's wrong with her husband, or any parent what's wrong with their kids, or any kid what's wrong with your parents, it's not going to be very long before we have the ability to point out the flaws of somebody else. We do that in our homes, we do that in our hearts, we do that in our workplaces, we do that in the church. And it doesn't take very long if you do an internet search and you will find blogs and pastors who have built platforms on telling their people what's wrong with everybody out there. What's wrong with that denomination? What's wrong with that church? As they continue not to be shepherds, but I call them sheepdogs, to attack everybody even within the church, calling out what they see as doctrinal heresy or anything else. We have the ability really quickly to see what is wrong with everyone else, and that was true of the Israelites in Amos' day, which is why Amos, God through Amos, utilizes one of the most beautiful rhetorical devices to wake his people up and shake them in the first two chapters of Amos. In the first two chapters of Amos, Amos begins declaring God's judgment on all of Israel's neighbors. He starts telling the people of Israel everything that's wrong with Edom. Everything that's wrong with Assyria, everything that's wrong even with their half-brothers, their cousins, Judah. He's drawing this circle that goes counterclockwise and continues to get closer and closer and closer and closer as he points out everything that's wrong with everybody else. And you can just imagine the people of Israel as they're hearing this prophecy going, that's right, Amos, you go get them. That's right, Amos, you tell them how bad they are. That's right, Amos, they deserve all of those things until he gets to the end and says, you're worse than every single one of them. You think they're bad. You're even worse. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. The same word that God used to condemn all of their neighbors and all of their enemies, God brings to bear on them. 
And God's laundry list of things that they've done wrong is three times as long as even their worst enemy. And God exposes their sin because God sees their sin. The people nearest to the Lord are those who are subject to his standards. They know his commandments. They've been given his word. And so God, through the prophet Amos, begins to take them to task for their sin. Specifically, as we have seen, their idolatry and their injustice. Hosea, if you will remember, specifically deals with the the idolatry of the people of Israel. Refusing to worship God and God alone. And that's the same that is here. Amos and Hosea were most likely contemporaries prophesying and their ministries coincided with one another. So they're attacking the same things. But idolatry of the people of Israel is heinous. Chapter 2, verse 7. Those after the end of verse 7. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. God had specifically commanded his people that if you take someone's cloak as a pledge, that they would repay you what you had loaned to them, you were required by God's law to give that cloak back to them by the end of the day because that was what protected them from the cold. What he says here is you take those cloaks that you have taken in pledge and you use it as your pillow sleeping at the foot of the altar for Baal. You spit in my face. And throughout the book of Hosea, we see their idolatry on display. But more glaringly even than that, we find out the ultimate result of idolatry, what comes from idolatry. When we cease to live in love with God, we stop loving our neighbors. And that is injustice. And repeatedly throughout the book of Amos, we find the people condemned for their injustice. Chapter 8, verses 4 through 6 specifically. God says, hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff for the wheat. You trample the poor. You grind them to dust underneath you. And then you have the audacity to say, when is church going to be over so that I can get back to my sin? When is this new moon festival going to be over? When is the Sabbath going to be done so that I can get back to making my living the way that I want to, even if it means that I am selling the chaff, not the wheat, but the stuff that the wind blows away and carries no nourishment so that I can sell that for a profit. They are so corrupt and they are so sinful. And God proves that as the Lord, the God of hosts, he sees into the temples of false gods. He sees into the homes of his people. He sees into their hearts and he hates what he sees. Nevertheless, his people cannot or will not see their own sin. And instead, They even have the audacity to silence the very ones that God has raised up to point it out to them. Chapter 2, verse 12, You made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. We see it even more clearly in Amos chapter 7 when Amos breaks into a narrative section when he talks about an interaction that he has with a false prophet named Amaziah. And in that particular passage, Amaziah comes to him as the representative of the king 
and says, hey, you're preaching these really bad prophecies against our king, and you're going to stop. And Jeroboam has commanded that you stop because this is unsettling everybody. The truth of the matter is, the voice of the false prophet exists in every single one of us. The voice of the false prophet exists in our world. The voice of the false prophet isn't difficult to find. The voice of the false prophet is always here to downplay our sin. It preaches against the word and the wisdom of God, which challenges us that we might be purified and sanctified. It's the voice that would lull us to sleep. It's the voice that would keep us comfortable. It's the voice that would point the finger at everybody else as the problem. It's the voice that protests inside of me, I'm not that bad. That's not true. We're not that bad. We're not unkind. We're not unwelcoming. We're not unfriendly. We're not sinners. Not at least not that bad. So you need to be quiet. You need to quit pointing out our sin. At least the sin that you perceive to be there. It's the voice that protests And it might sound encouraging and it might build us up, but the truth of the matter is it's a voice that's hostile to the gospel itself. It's the voice that's hostile to our sanctification. Because it's only the needy who find their need met in God. And it's only the repentant who find God's grace. It's only those who see their sin who have it washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we must wage war against the voice of the false prophet inside of us. We ran a pilot program a few years back of a marriage enrichment curriculum called Reengage, and they have a beautiful principle in that when you come to this, what we are going to ask of you is a commitment that we ask is that you, when you come in this place and when you start working and you're working on your marriage, here's what you need to do. You draw a circle around yourself and you work as ferociously as you can on the person in the circle, and you leave everybody else to God. And that includes the spouse that you think is the problem. Because the truth of the matter is, the only person that you have any control over, the only person that you have the ability to submit and surrender to the Lord that he might change you is yourself. And the reality is in the church of Jesus Christ and in your life and in my life, as easy as it is to point and the blame at everybody else, just like Adam blamed Eve and God and Eve blamed the serpent, we have the tendency to shift the blame to somebody else. And what Scripture says is you are the only problem that you can do anything about. And Amos would have every single one of us draw the circle around ourselves just as he is inspiring the people of Israel. Draw the circle around yourself and work ferociously on the person in the circle, repenting and seeking after the Lord. Because God sees our sin and God is concerned with our sin because God's sovereignty and his character and his justice, his holiness and his righteousness demands that the Lord, the God of hosts, judge our sin and discipline us in our sin. Amos chapter 9, verse 8. Remember, it's the summary. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, but second, I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. God's righteousness and holiness demands justice. The people have grown fat and they're comfortable in their sin as they oppress those that are beneath them and they indulge in their sinful desires. And in their pride, they have become convinced we're untouchable. Amos chapter 6, verse 1. Woe! 
Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Later on in that same chapter, woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. These people have grown fat and happy and comfortable in their palaces and their mansions with their ivory beds. And God says it's all coming to an end. You think that you're safe and secure in your strongholds. You think that you're safe and secure in the temples of Baal and Bethel and Gilgal. But God says, I can touch you anywhere. And I can discipline you anywhere. And so he declares that he will strike down everything that they trust in more than him. Chapter 6, verse 8, the Lord has sworn by himself, declares the Lord God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Chapter 6, verse 11, behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments and the little house into bits. No matter where you hide, wherever you feel secure, even if it is your own home, your temple to yourself, God says, when I come in judgment, I will destroy even that. But beyond that, in chapter 9, verse 1, he strikes down their false prophets and their false temples. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. This is not the altar of the temple in Jerusalem. Instead, it's the altar that was set up in the false temple in Bethel, where they worshipped the cow god that they had created. And it says here that he saw the Lord standing beside that altar, and God said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them, I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. God says, your false worship is not anything that impresses me. Your false worship will not secure you. Your false worship is not more powerful than me. All of these gods are fake and false. And he says, I will judge you. God does this because the people that he has established, the city and the temple that he built according to his holy standard are no longer straight. Perhaps if you're familiar with Amos or any part of Amos at all, the passage of Scripture that you might be the most familiar with is the plumb line passage. When Amos sees a city that has been built with a plumb line, and the picture is God has built the people of Israel, and the city that was built was built with a plumb line which implies that the constructor of the city originally built it straight. But God has now returned to the city with a plumb line, and he has held it against his people, and they are now crooked. They have gone the way of sin. They have gone the way of idolatry and injustice. And so their end is near. And as in Amos chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, Amos sees another vision. This vision is a basket of fruit. The play, uh, Amos has a play on words here because the word for basket of fruit sounds very much in Hebrew like the word in verse 2 for end. The end has come upon my people Israel. He sees a basket of kets, which means the kets is coming. It's a play on word as this basket of fruit only has a limited time before it spoils, and now the time has come for the people of Israel to experience the judgment of the Lord. And even their fake worship, their false worship is not enough. 
Because you see, as God comes, and we saw this in Joel, and as you read through the book of Amos, you'll see those imagery, that imagery, that cosmic imagery of the coming of the day of the Lord in justice throughout the book of Amos. And as God comes in, and God takes over, he pushes everything that is not of God out. Have you ever tried to, to pack a suitcase full and you finally have to, if, if you're going to get this thing closed, I'm going to have to sit on it or have somebody else sit on it and I'm going to zip it because there's only so much room inside of this thing. When God comes, God comes to, and desires to fill every inch of his people, to fill every inch of this church. And anything that is not of God must go. And God will expose the things in our lives those places where idolatry and injustice exist with pressure. As he's trying to fill us up and there's a spot and there's a place where something that should go is hanging on or we're clinging on to it and God will wage war on that idol. And so where, brothers and sisters, are the places of pressure in your life? Where do the things that you try so desperately to hide come rushing out? Where is your anger? Where is your anxiety? Where is your tension with others? Those are often the pressure points in your life. The place where God's finger is is he is trying to expose something. So often we turn our, blind, our eyes blind to the problem that there is something deeper under this as my anger continually comes up over this subject or at this person or I'm constantly anxious over this area of my life or there's always this tension of trustworthiness and faithfulness at this particular place, God is seeking to expose the false idols in our life that in His judgment and in His grace and in His mercy, He might kick them away. What are the strongholds in your life? What are the places that God is giving you time in His grace, calling you to repent, to turn back to Him? As God is faithful again and again and again, just like He was faithful with the Israelites, to call them to Himself, to bring pressure in their life, and yet they repeatedly refused. All of chapter 4 is a testimony of God claiming again and again, I did this, and yet you did not return to me. I did this, and yet you did not return to me. I brought pestilence, and I brought plague, and I brought disease, and I brought enemies, and yet you did not return to me. God does all this not only because he judges our sin, but the Lord God of hosts also saves us from our sin. God is merciful and God is gracious. And he gives us opportunity after opportunity as he brings problems in our lives to expose, to bring to the surface what shouldn't be in our hearts and in our lives, that he might wipe it away and wash it away. Are we running from him or are we running to him? Because the truth of the matter is God is a God full of grace and mercy, abounding in steadfast love. Amos 9, verse 8. First, he sees their sin. Second, he destroys it from the, surface, the sinful nation from the surface of the earth, except, the Lord says, I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. As dark as the book of Amos is, filled with declarations of God's judgment, as you read it, you are constantly brought face to face with God's affection for his people. All the way in chapter 2, 
God says, even as he is condemning them for their sin, for their idolatry and their injustice, he says in chapter 2, verse 9, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose hand was like the height of the cedars, who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. God is reminding them of his faithfulness. God is reminding them of his affection and his love for them. You can almost hear that heart of the Father that says, I'm here to discipline you, but listen, look at what I've done for you. Remember my grace and my mercy and my compassion for you. Chapter 9, verse 7 and 8. Did I not bring up Israel out of the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Syrians from Kerr? I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, God says. God has pursued his people and they have repeatedly rejected him. And yet still, God promises that even as he disciplines his children, he will never utterly forsake them. Instead, he will have mercy and he will restore them. The mercy and the grace and the hope of Hosea comes in the final chapter. As dark as the book may be, eventually it comes to the promises that God will redeem and he will rescue his people. And in Amos chapter 9, you find that beautiful cosmic imagery of the day of the Lord, but not God coming in judgment, God coming in salvation. As God declares, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. God doesn't only bring judgment. God brings salvation as he is faithful to show mercy and grace to his people. And I was struck as I was reading through this again and again, and it took some six or seven times of reading through the book of Hosea that I finally saw the last line. As God concludes this entire prophecy, he promises all of this and he ends it with this, says the Lord, your God. It's the only time in the entire book and as God concludes, he reminds them once again of that special status that they have. You are mine, and I am yours. And because that is true, God is faithful to keep his promises. God always keeps his covenant. God promises that he will discipline and that the sinner will come under his hand of judgment, but he will not utterly wipe away his people. Instead, he will restore them. And that restoration comes specifically, according to verse 11, in the restoration of the booth of David. You see, Jesus was the ultimate favored son of God. And unlike those rogue preacher kids or principal kids or owner's kids that are constantly abusing the status, the privileges that the status comes from, Jesus never did. He never saw power and authority and his status as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, as something that must be grasped and held onto. Instead, Jesus Christ came to serve others and seek justice even at the cost of his own life. See, Christ is the anchor. Jesus is the key to the promises of God as he is the perfect Son of God who never faltered, who never failed. And yet... As the perfect spotless Son of God chose to endure the wrath of God for the very ones who deserved it. As he hung on the cross and experienced that day of the Lord, the day of the Lord that is dark and mournful, that day of the Lord 
that is as one with, who mourns over the loss of an only son, as God promises that he is going to bring the judgment that he brought on Egypt down. On that day, declares the Lord God, Amos chapter 8, verse 9, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. In that passage of Scripture, he's bringing up imagery of the judgment on Exodus as he points the people back to the days that the sun went dark and the days that God came and visited the nation of Egypt and he killed the firstborn sons, but he passed over his children. Amos repeatedly says that God will no longer do that. He says, I will visit my people. He said, I will no longer pass over my children or pass by them. God is coming in judgment. And that judgment ultimately falls on the one who hung on a cross when at noon the sky went dark and the earth quaked and shaked as he bore the punishment and the wrath of God for sin for you and for me. And yet, in fulfillment of his promises, God raised him up. A temple of the living God. The one who tabernacled among us, John tells us and now invites us. Just as Amos repeatedly invites the children of Israel throughout Amos chapter 5, seek the Lord and live. Seek God and live. Seek me and live. Verse, chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. Seek good and not evil that you may live, and so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. That same Lord, the God of hosts, who touches mountains and they boil, who raises rivers in, in rage and calls oceans as acts of judgment, that same God who is so terrifying against us is the God who can take all of that power and use it for us. If we would seek Him, seek good and not evil, he commands us in verse 15 of chapter 5, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. God invites us to seek him. Christ invites us to seek him. And as we seek Jesus, as we find in him the source of love, as we receive that love and love him in return, because after all, the opposite of idolatry is being obedient to the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And if we will obey that command and fall in love with the Lord and receive the God's love on a daily basis, guess what? Loving our neighbors just becomes the natural side effect. As we fall away from loving God, we'll fall away from loving our neighbors. But as we fall in love with the Lord, we will fall in love with those around us in seeking justice, seeking mercy, establishing justice in the gate. That'll be easy. That'll be the natural overflow of existing in God's love loving God in return. So my invitation to you and to me, every single one of us, is to heed the warning of Amos and draw that circle around your own heart. Open your heart to the Lord and pray ferociously and work ferociously on the person that is in the circle and let the Lord deal with everyone else. And as the Lord brings those pressure points in your life and exposes the things in our hearts and in our lives that are not of Him and not pursuing Him, we don't need to be burdened and weighed down by that. 
We just need to simply seek Jesus and look to Christ and give that burden and that weight and that sin over to him and trust in the good news of the gospel that he has already taken it all upon himself. And he will replace it with his grace and his mercy and his righteousness as he clothes us in that. So my invitation to each and every single one of you and each into my own heart as well, seek God and live. Seek good and not evil. Love the Lord God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. And trust in him to do what is good and what is right and what is true in you. And then you don't need to be like those that God says, don't you dare ask for the Lord to come. How dare you ask for the day of the Lord because it is going to be horrible. Instead, we get to look forward to the day of the Lord as Christ draws near, not in judgment, but in grace.